Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about a subject which I imagine will be at least a little bit touchy for some of you. For those of you who aren't familiar with the channel, we regularly talk about the video game industry. And this particular topic is one of those areas where the video game industry, people that follow the industry, just gamers in general, tend to have a little bit of their ears pricked up because there have been pretty substantial fights on social media about these topics, whether or not you subscribe to this all being a result of Gamergate and the things that happened a number of years back. That's really not part of this discussion. But I've pulled up on your screen a tweet from Sophia Narwitz, who is a journalist who puts out YouTube videos, who writes for various sources, not in kind of the main scope of what you would consider the video game websites, the Polygons, IGNs, GameSpots, Kotaku's of the world, but has been now for at least a year putting out kind of guerrilla journalism and broke the ESA leak story, the story in which the it was discovered that the ESA had essentially revealed a lot of the personal information of the attendees from E3. Now, in the interest of full disclosure, with Ms. Narwitz, she contacted me as part of that story to talk about what potential legal obligations she might have and what kind of things she needed to worry about before she went live with the story. I communicated with her on those topics, didn't otherwise have a direct impact on the reporting or the investigative work there, but I am familiar with her work. We follow each other on Twitter. We regularly communicate. And she is one of those folks that is persona non grata in various of these circles, either because of breaking that story, because of certain aggressive tendencies that she displays on Twitter, and what have you. But as part of that story is this story that she broke yesterday called, A prominent source spoke to me about a click of game journalists who are gatekeeping those with differing beliefs from obtaining careers. Moves which have struck fear as writers are afraid to cover certain stories lest they be targeted next. Now, Ms. Narwitz is also the primary writer for Colin Moriarty's side quest content, content that is scripted. If you're not familiar with Colin Moriarty, he is formerly of IGN. He's formerly of Kind of Funny. He currently operates a Patreon and website that has things like side quest, that does fireside chats with prominent names in the industry and around it, and is otherwise kind of doing his own thing now separate from the mainstream journalistic media in the gaming industry. And with that context, you've got Sophia and Colin out there having their own conversations. And as we look at this article, part of that is going to be about my personal experiences now, both in virtual legality, which has only existed for now a little over 13 months, in covering Colin, in interacting with Sophia, and backing up at least parts of what this article says. So if you aren't familiar with it, this has been linked around a lot. This has been discussed a lot online. And we're going to look at it just like any other article that we look at in virtual legality, kind of looking at the source, looking at the tilt. And we're going to find that there are potential issues with how this is reported, primarily because of anonymity. And that's understandable in respect of what is being reported here, because what is being reported is if you're not anonymous and you're outed in certain ways, that that's a problem for you and your career. So we expect that kind of uh, concern for security when somebody might be giving quotes like this. But it also means that we have to judge it as we have judged previous articles in virtual legality in the past, which is to say, because someone is anonymous, we can't fully evaluate their tilt. We can't fully evaluate exactly where they're coming from, their agenda. 
I have no reason to believe, just like I have had no reason to believe in other articles that we've analyzed on this channel and in this series, that this is at all fabricated. But because we don't know the person that's making these statements, it's very difficult for us to fully analyze what it is that they are saying. So without further ado, let's actually take a look at the article in total here. It says, if you are a conservative, you have no chance. Games Journalism Insider outs click that runs industry like private domain. And this was written for Russia Today, which is also, if you want to, a place where you can discount certain aspects of the story because Russia Today is owned by the Russian government, I believe, or at least a subsidiary of it, uh, and is operated for sometimes nefarious purposes, particularly in respect to foreign policy and those kinds of things. But it is one of those outlets like really any outlet that you should question and, and kind of decide for yourself exactly what their biases are and whether or not you want to give full faith and credit to what it is that they are reporting. So we've got anonymous sources. We've got a Russia Today article that kind of starts us off in a place where we have to we have to take everything with a grain of salt. We have to analyze. We have to use our critical thinking skills to really read this and see what it has to say. Ms. Narwitz begins. An influential figure from a leading gaming website says that a clique of like-minded media figures are colluding to prevent right-leaning journalists and developers from having a voice in the industry. Right-leaning in this context, in case you are not from around here, not in the United States, means more conservative, uh, means folks that in general would favor things like a more limited government, a lower tax structure, things along those lines, although obviously with kind of the culture wars and the social liberalism versus social conservatism items out there as well. It's not limited to solely those kinds of more economic items. Uh, and it is, in fact, those kind of culture war items that I think get people more, uh, let's call it animated, on social media against each other and having these conversations. But what that sentence says is an anonymous person from what Ms. Narwitz describes as a leading gaming website, a little bit unclear what that might be, but... We presume that it's in the relative kind of Kotaku, Polygon, IGN, GameSpot, kind of mainstream stuff that'll pop up if you type in a video game's name in a Google News search right at the top. And this influential figure says that a clique of like-minded media figures are colluding to prevent right-leaning journalists and developers from having a voice in the industry. Now, as a lawyer, colluding is a very specific kind of term. It means they're actually operating together to accomplish this. And one of the things that I'll say right up front is that I don't know that you necessarily need to send emails, that you need to offer directions and give instructions if you are in a group of like-minded people that is just trying to keep your group as a like-minded one, right? I don't know that you absolutely need instructions. I don't know that you need to collude. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later in the video. But what is going to be described in this article is something that can be accomplished, if it exists, as easily as just kind of putting pressure on not stepping outside from the orthodoxy. And I think we see that in most aspects of our lives, if we're being honest, right? I think it's kind of intuitive if you're at a workplace and they have certain kind of beliefs. Let's say it's not political. Let's say it's not religious. Let's say it's not anything so important, but just a favorite sports team that they really root for in that office. That becomes a kind of slight outward pressure from the folks that have that rooting interest for you to join them, or at least to not be actively espousing their rival. Right. And there are some exceptions to that. But I, I work in Michigan. I work in Ann Arbor. I've worked in Ann Arbor my entire career. And for the most part, all the offices that I've worked in have been very pro Michigan Wolverines, the university that is in Ann Arbor. And their biggest rivals are Notre Dame, Michigan State and Ohio State. And occasionally 
you'll have some people come out and just decide to be that person that wants to root against Michigan and kind of make a big thing of it. And it's just sports, so nobody really cares at the end of the day. But there are also those people that are maybe closet Notre Dame fans that went to Notre Dame. Nothing wrong with that university at all, but it's just not Michigan, and that's my alma mater. And so you say, hey, down with Notre Dame when it's that game week. But that those people kind of don't cheer quite as loudly and they might have a little Notre Dame statue or an Irish bobblehead on their desk, but they don't necessarily make it as prominently known as the rest of the firm attorneys that maybe put a Michigan flag on their door during the week in which they're playing one of their rivals. And so I think it's intuitive to us to understand when you've got some kind of collection of mindset that you don't necessarily need to say, hey, you need to keep your Notre Dame stuff in the drawer. It just kind of happens because you don't want to rock the boat. For the most part, the workplace isn't a place for rocking the boat. You want to get your stuff done and get home, maybe go out for drinks afterwards, but mostly focus on what it is that you're trying to accomplish. And I think part of that, part of that reality allows folks that are in this clique, in this mindset, whatever it might be, to very easily wipe away the notion that any of this is real. Obviously, we don't do that. We don't have a secret handshake. We don't have rings that we touch together in order to get into our meetings at Kotaku or where have you. And I think that's honestly the truth. And I think that's one of the things that we need to kind of grapple with when we talk about these issues is that collusion might be too strong a word, but it's also not necessary when you've got what exists as like-minded people. And I think anybody that really follows the gaming industry and, and kind of reads these sites knows that for the most part, there is a certain prominence of a at least left-leaning kind of politics as represented in their reporting on, on video games. And as we've talked about, and we're going to talk about in this video, that's not necessarily something that I have a significant problem with, but it exists, and to kind of wave it away doesn't do anybody much good. Continuing with these quotes, because that's where things get really interesting. If you were openly a conservative and tried to apply to any of the mainstream outlets that are on the coasts, I don't think you'd have a chance in hell of getting in, says this source, who wishes to remain anonymous for fear of repercussions. There's a lot of us that probably think there's a clique, well, that know that there's a clique. This clique is composed of journalists from well-known gaming and tech websites. And this is where Ms. Nowerwitz actually named some websites. Kotaku, Polygon, Vice, Ars Technica, Game Daily, GameSpot, Eurogamer, and loads more. Now, this is another place where I give disclaimers. I've given quotes to various folks at virtually all of those websites, right? Hogue Law, Richard Hogue, me, has given quotes on various things. I gave quotes to Game Daily just yesterday about Kickstarter's unionization and what that might look like in the game industry. And as always in virtual legality and elsewhere when we go out to the public with quotes like that, the goal is to educate, to inform, and not necessarily to politicize every aspect of all these various things. But as part of this video, we'll also see how I have been warned in the past about things that I have said online and things that I have done in virtual legality uh, about whether or not certain gaming outlets, certain folks are going to be able to use my material because of the way I represent myself uh, in public. Continuing with the quotes, people won't write something or we won't say anything on Twitter or whatever because you spew one wrong opinion and you're asking for trouble says the source who has admitted to keeping their own opinions private to avoid sanction. Unless you don't care about potential opportunities within the industry, if you're just burning the bridges down, a lot of people just don't say what they're actually thinking. Now, as, as a lawyer, and this isn't official legal advice because I don't know your specific facts and circumstances, but as a lawyer, I would recommend to everyone to not say everything that you're actually thinking on social media, right? 
We are currently in an age of cancel culture and outrage mobs and everything else. And that's bad enough when you're talking about bad jokes from years ago. But even if you are thinking something and it doesn't necessarily seem outrageous to you at the time, we are in a society right now where your employer might look at something on Twitter or on Facebook or elsewhere and say, that's not something that I want representing my company. And so I'm going to ask you to leave or I'm otherwise going to make trouble for you. And so my recommendation as a lawyer in general, not to you specifically, anybody that wants to sue me for giving legal advice, but my advice in general is to really be cautious with those kinds of things and to potentially lock down your your sites, your social media access, but to really be cognizant of that regardless of whether you currently find yourself in an environment in your current situation that has one of these clicks or that otherwise uh, might otherwise cause trouble because the pendulum does swing right? What might be okay for you to just put out there in public right now, if you think about what that might look like in 10 years, I know it's hard to believe that what you said right now might be outrageous in the future. And so you really have to take that into account. Now, in all honesty, I put out some stuff on Twitter. I like to have those conversations. One of the kind of guiding characteristics of Hogue Law in general is that lawyers are people and we're not robots and you don't need to think of us that way. And we have our opinions. And a lot of my tweets are about Michigan football or Michigan basketball and video games. Just did a number of tweets this morning about the Animal Crossing Nintendo Direct. But that also I go out there with certain kind of vaguely political sentiments that talk about what the current state of political play is. Not with very kind of outrageous things, but with things that some people have taken offense to in the past. Continuing with the article, she headlines this politics over integrity the dominance has directly impacted the integrity of the journalism at the publications run by the Click members. In one example, which was described to me in detail that I have obscured to protect the source, staff members were discussing coverage of a controversial figure who'd been wrongly punished by a gaming organization. Several members of the site objected, saying that the figure did not deserve fair coverage because they are not a good person, their crime being openly right-wing. My source continues, they don't want to cover things because they don't like somebody, and that's not how you do journalism, that's blogging. To which I say, hey, if virtual legality is some kind of vlog or blog, I take offense to that statement. Just kidding. But seriously, when we look at an article like this, one of the issues that we have, right, is that there's a lot of paraphrasing there. Again, we don't doubt Ms. Narwitz and what her source has told her, but she's describing all of this without quotes to start out with and obscuring kind of the context so the source doesn't give themselves away, which all makes sense. There's nothing wrong with that, but we obviously have to take it with a grain of salt. Several members of the site objected, saying that the figure did not deserve fair coverage because they're not a good person is probably not the way that conversation went down, right? Generally speaking, even folks of specific political persuasions don't say they don't deserve fair coverage. It's not language that they would use. And so we already get kind of a heightened approach to this, but not one that's necessarily wrong in spirit, just one that we have to take with that grain of salt. And I think it's certainly worth noting that certain people get the benefit of the doubt when others don't, certainly based on a number of characteristics, whether you're from the same hometown and also whether you share the same politics, which is what this next section, which we're not going to go over too terribly much, is about. She calls this hypocrisy in action, and it basically says, hey, there are a bunch of things that people within the gaming journalism industry do that they otherwise call other folks out for in their articles or on their social media. And they did it themselves. And there's a hypocrisy to that. And this source says what I think we all know from not just video game journalism, but just from operating in the internet, period, is it's all audience building tactics. 
Look at how much people talk about those controversy articles on social media. They know exactly what they're doing because it works. You sow the dissent, people engage with it. Similarly, her next section talks about mental health issues and saying that people go after other people on social media. They don't get called out for it within this quote unquote click that operates game journalism. And I certainly think if you're friends with somebody as I think the games journalism industry generally is, bare minimum, if you don't agree with any bit of this article, I think for the most part, they know each other. They know the difficulties of the job. And so they are friends of a certain type. They might be competitors for clicks in some respect, but they understand what is happening, how hard the job is, what they have to go through to get it done, to get those articles out the door. And so they are friends of a type. I often tell the story that people in the legal fields who otherwise fight like the Dickens, right? If you heard some of my conference calls with opposing counsel, you would be amazed at how angry and at how passionate and how vitriolic some of those discussions can get about things as simple as a semicolon in a sentence, if that semicolon is worth $5 million, right? But at the end of the day, it's very often the case that those lawyers that you operate against, even if they're passionate, even if they're against you, even if they kind of beat you down on certain points, Those are the lawyers, if they respect you and if they do a good job, that you go to drinks with, that you meet at cocktail hour, that you refer things out to if they're not in your wheelhouse because you understand how the job is done, how difficult it is, how draining it is. And so it's natural for folks in a certain industry to have that kind of relationship. And when you have that kind of relationship, I do think it winds up resulting in certain blind spots. I don't doubt any of what is being said here, but those blind spots, I think, are at least a little bit understandable. What is less understandable are things that we've talked about in the past, a little bit more direct political statements, probably some things that I have said on Twitter that have gotten me in trouble that I don't necessarily think is warranted. But, you know, you've got a quote here from a source that says, if somebody actually wants to see evidence that someone was sexually assaulted, you're immediately thrown under the bus for just wanting to hear both sides of the story and that you don't support victims, even though that absolutely is not true. You can't get the full story from one side all the time. And that obviously talks about me too. That talks about believe all women and these kinds of things, which we have touched on in virtual legality. And I think those movements come from a good place. I think they come from a place of people wanting more justice in the world. But in pursuing that goal, I think they do run the risk and quite often actually exhibit that risk of removing justice from where it belongs, right? I'm a lawyer. I get in trouble for this on Twitter but I believe in the rule of law. I believe in due process. I believe in innocent until proven guilty. And by all means, listen to everyone that is bringing claims. But from the outside, be reticent, be reluctant to evaluate the status of facts and circumstances which you couldn't possibly know, which you weren't in the room for, which you are getting one side of the story or the other about. And don't judge things like that. And especially... If you just want my social media tips on this kind of thing, especially don't go out with a super strong stance on a set of facts that you don't know because you don't have firsthand knowledge about, that you don't have firsthand experience about. We talk all the time in virtual legality about going straight to the source, getting that source material, understanding that because filters are a problem for the most unbiased observer. In virtual legality, we link every single source we can find in the description to our videos because I am an observer and I try to be unbiased. I try to be as fair and as balanced, as much as that phrase might uh, offend some folks, as possible. But 
I still know that there are parts and nuances and things that are obviously going to get elided when you listen to a 20 or 30 or 45 minute video here on this YouTube channel that might be better covered if you read through all 100 pages of whatever document it is that I'm summarizing. So I always recommend going to the source and I always recommend having that in your back pocket. So yes, I have a problem with those folks that say, you know, just believe one thing over the other. It's not a great kind of situation to be in out there in the world, believing what is reported on as one set of facts delivered by one source and just disregarding everything else. And so I do think you get into those problems. I do think you get into those positions. That is one of those areas which I remember having tweeted about, having put some social media content out about basically in general, in accordance with the contours of the ethics rules that govern the way I operate as a lawyer in Michigan and in the United States that talk about the rule of law, that talk about respecting innocence until proven guilt and those kinds of things. Continuing with this article, she talks about developmental hardship, which I thought was interesting. The source confirmed that the self-censorship described as walking on eggshells, remember, putting that Notre Dame bobblehead in your drawer instead of displaying it proudly on your desk, extends beyond journalists. Its members will often perform Twitter deep dives to extract problematic statements, which are then used to imperil careers of game developers who do not have the finances or reputation to defend themselves. That's an issue we've talked about throughout virtual legality, but in any instance where a mob operates or a large corporation operates, potentially in a lawsuit setting, you do have kind of certain costs that would be necessary to even avail yourselves of what might be the proper defenses. We talked about that yesterday with respect to fair use and intellectual property. If you can't pay to get that defense up and running, if you can't pay to fight off something like an outrage mob, then you are going to be in trouble regardless of the truthfulness, the veracity of the accusation or what you might otherwise be facing. A notable example is the last night developer, Tim Soray, I'm gonna guess on that pronunciation, who was demonized in 2017 for saying he was against feminism and for egalitarianism and supporting Gamergate in years old tweets. They, the game developers, are just as sick of the clickbait and out of context quotes as everybody else my source reveals. They say they have been told this in person and say that this has sown mistrust between the media and game creators. A lot of times they, the game developers, feel spoken for from the press. And that's not what is what was reported is not what they were actually thinking. They can't be open and honest about their actual opinions without someone being something being ripped from them and spun in a way that is negative towards them if they are not on the same page with everybody else. This tallies with my own exchanges with sources from Arcane Studios in 2018, who said that they had to conceal their beliefs while progressive members of the team made proud declarations such as the world would be better off without white men. The situation led to unresolved tensions within the team. That's worth noting, right? If the goal of video game journalism or any kind of journalism is to, at some level, deliver the truth of the situation, what people actually believe, if you put yourself in these situations where that Notre Dame bobblehead can't be pulled out of the drawer, you are not getting a full and factual understanding of what's happening, right? If you want to report on the truthfulness of the development of something like The Last Night, or other games that have had issues. I think Kingdom Come Deliverance had an issue similar to this. If you want to get to the bottom of that, if you want to get good truthful statements, it is useful to not strike an adversarial stance against those folks, to not look like they will be instantly and immediately penalized for X, Y, or Z, because you want to get to what is actually happening. 
And if everybody understands the game as described here, then you're going to get told what you want to be told, but you're not going to get a greater understanding of what's actually happening with the admittedly somewhat non-serious topic of video game development, right? It's worthwhile to have these conversations on somewhat less important ground than national politics or law or criminal justice reform or what have you, because it's not something that actually changes lives that terribly, at least from the consumer side. Obviously, these developers are affected. But it's worthwhile to have the conversation because journalists should be doing the job to try to get at the truth, to get to the best information possible. And if that isn't happening, that's something worthwhile of concern. Will a rebellion rise up is her final section here. It says the existence of a a click probably won't be surprising to those who follow the industry closely. And they then describe a number of the kind of listservs and things that have popped up before. It says, I think you'd be surprised by how many writers can't stand the click in this space. Most won't say anything because they need the work, you know? That sounds cowardly, but there's definitely a lot of fear in this space that people will get canceled for speaking out against a lot of what's going on. And that's the overall structure of this article. Like I said, it's caused a lot of clicks. It's had a lot of reporting. It's had a lot of people discuss it and dismiss it and to really kind of react angrily about it. And I, I do think some of that comes from the messenger. I think there's a lot of anger about a lot of various people on social media and, and in various places in our society, a lot of which I would like to see kind of gone away. Uh, but I'm not sure that uh, these folks, Sophia and Colin and, and, and that kind of side of things tend to be a little bit aggressive on Twitter. And so I think some of that is encouraged, but obviously they would probably characterize it as a little bit more defensive, which I can entirely understand. But suffice it to say, that last bit is what I want to talk about a little bit more. This is an anonymously sourced story. This is a story published in Russia today from a journalist that you might not like or you might not respect or what have you. But I can tell you personally that I have experienced at least some of this. And so I want to bring that a little bit more to your attention. So I've pulled up now a tweet that Colin, uh, Sophia's friend and employer on on side uh, quest, uh, put up on Twitter that said, hey, when I posted this, this is a tweet that he made in 2018, I was made fun of and treated like shit. I was legit the last prominent conservative games journalist. I quit IGN in 2014. It's worth noting here, by the way, that Colin is not what I would consider an orthodox conservative. He's not a deep red state conservative. He's somewhat of a mix. Uh, And so it's an interesting kind of data point for what has happened to him in his career Regardless of whether you think it's warranted or not, I do think politics plays a part in that equation. And a lot of people don't want to be the next Colin Moriarty. A lot of people don't want to have the vitriol thrown at them that Sophia Narwitz gets or that Colin gets or that the people that associate with him get, which is where we're getting to in this video. If games are political, they are, and covered politically, they should be, then readers deserve more viewpoints. And this is the tweet that he made in 2018. Games media has a diversity problem, but it's not the one ably written about here. Can you name a single conservative or libertarian writer working at any mainstream games outlet? Just one. I'd like diversity of thought and ideas. Skin deep is just that. And I responded to this because I have worked with and consulted with and talked to Sophia and Colin before. And I said, hey, not that I have your prominence. (laughs) I never worked for IGN. I don't have a huge Patreon, was never at Kind of Funny, didn't do those kinds of things. But I can say that I was warned in various circles for even interacting with you, Colin, or Sophia, including on Reset Era and from at least one publication. My virtual legality on your PAX issue also got me blacklisted by some, I'm told. It's not good. It's not a good situation. 
right? I think if you follow virtual legality, if this isn't your first time, if, if you've watched a number of the videos that we do in this space, we try to be balanced. We try to be fair. Our view, our goal, our mission is that we can educate, we can inform, we can talk about business and law in a way that is hopefully fairly neutral. You'll hear me talk about reforms that I think are necessary, and those reforms might fall into one bucket or the other from a political spectrum kind of concept. That might be something that I advocate that Democrats might advocate or that Republicans might advocate. But for the most part, I might advocate a, a piece of reform based on the video that I'm doing, based on what we've read, what we've talked about, to say, hey, some change needs to happen here. And if it falls under a specific bucket, that's almost by happenstance. But a number of people don't take it that way. A number of people look at my Twitter and say, hey, I read the messaging about Gamergate. I read the messaging about uh, the Russia Times article that we just went over from Sophia. I read how she's treated about, how she talked about the ESA doxing, how Colin is treated. I look at that and I say, I don't think that's right. I don't think that cancellation is proper. And I think if you disagree with these people strongly, the best thing you can do is understand what it is that they are saying so that you can fight against it from a position of knowledge. If you disagree with anybody on the other side strongly, that's what I recommend. What I tell people, what I like to say, is I follow Fox and Vox. I follow both. It's useful to have that understanding of how people think. Because if you fight straw men, yeah, it might be gratifying for you to kill that straw man. But the person who is representing the side of the straw man that you just built is very able to hand wave away what you just fought against because that straw man, he doesn't exist. And so if you are only fighting those ghosts, if you're only fighting the kind of shells of a liberal or a conservative that you've built up in your mind, those conservatives and those liberals can say, that guy's an idiot. He doesn't know what I really believe. And they can wipe away what you're saying without a thought. Because in truth, you are acting like an idiot. You didn't respond to what they actually believe. You made them a caricature of themselves and they could say, yeah, that guy's obviously fighting a caricature of me and I don't need to worry about it. Now to talk about my tweet a little bit more, I did a video in July of 2019 called Colin Moriarty, Sacred Symbols and Broken Pax Promises, A Lawyer's View. This was actually, if I recall correctly, the first video in virtual legality that went over 10,000 views that a lot of people responded positively to. And it was about the fact that PAX, that Colin and Sacred Symbols had signed up to do a live podcast version at, I think it was PAX West. They essentially just canceled their panel with very little notice and having Colin and his fans already bought tickets to the event. And so I talked about the license. I talked about how they were probably within their rights to do so in most instances, but that they might owe damages for things that were like expenses that Colin and his fans had already incurred. More Colin and less his fans. But that video was well received. I think it got a lot of attention in various circles. But this was me talking about a person that was persona non grata in various spheres, right? And I can tell you, I was concerned about that. This is my own concern. This is me putting my Notre Dame bobblehead in the drawer. But at the time that I made this video, I was a sponsor of a group called Easy Allies, formerly Game Trailers, uh, founded by Brandon Jones. You might be familiar with them. Kyle Bossman, Ian Hink, a number of other people. There are nine of them. And Brandon had been on Colin's uh, Fireside Chats special, where he talks to people in the gaming industry a month or two before that. And the Easy Allies fan base had gotten very, very upset at Brandon, had gotten very, very upset at him even deigning to speak with Colin, 
who, it should be said, I don't think share a political philosophy at all. I don't want to speak for Colin. I don't want to speak for Brandon on this, but I have spoken with both of them and it would surprise me if they have a lot of politics in common. But even going so far as to have the conversation to talk about what one disagrees with was too far for some of these folks. And so with that being said, I was a little bit reluctant to make this video of my own accord because I didn't want any of my sponsorship of Easy Allies to fall negatively on the allies themselves. You don't sponsor a podcast that talks about video games in California with the hope of making them lose Patreon support, right? And I had a number of interactions with various Easy Allies, most of which were confidential, and I won't bring up the actual specifics of here about this. Uh, But suffice it to say, it was talked about, and we had conversations about it, and I wanted to make sure that everything was going to be okay. But this put me on a bit of a list. I had talked about Colin Moriarty. I had talked about him somewhat sympathetically. I had said, hey, Pax probably does owe him for the detrimental reliance of him spending money to go make this panel happen, of buying a plane ticket, and they canceled it late in the day, and they probably owe him some damages, even under the contract that they had had. And so because of that sympathy, that kind of started out a little bit rocky. And we're going to talk about some of the interactions I had with people after that, after we talk about this second video, which is actually about the doxing, right? I talked to you about uh, Ms. Narwitz and asking me questions about the doxing. I got a call from her late one night uh, as she was going over and investigating this story. And we talked about it a little bit. Uh, She's not my client. Uh, This was essentially a consult to a journalist, just like any other consult that I have with Game Daily Biz or Kotaku or IGN or what have you. Uh, And we had this conversation, then she went live with it, and then I did a virtual legality on the episode. But now I've got a virtual legality that mentions Sophia. I've got a virtual legality that mentions Colin. And what ultimately wound up happening from there is I got a few communications, right? This tweet that I said, hey, I've been warned in various circles, and I'm not going to go into the specifics here, and I know a lot of you would love me to do that. But for the most part, I'm not going to do that for a couple of reasons. One, the folks that contacted me asked me not to. Right. And this kind of goes to something that Sophia said in her article about essentially people walking on eggshells. The folks that contacted me warned me. And I know that you can read that as a threat, but they didn't threaten me. What they did was they told me, hey, you know, you cover Colin and then you talk to Sophia about this various thing. We like your stuff. This was told to me. We like your stuff. We like your tweets. We like to use you as a source. We like virtual legality. Um, But we have to tell you, you know, if you continue to kind of communicate with these folks, have an openness to gamer gators, I believe they were described as, then we are going to be more reluctant to use you as a source. We're going to be more reluctant um, to kind of reference virtual legality and those kinds of things. And I said, hey, I appreciate the heads up. I appreciate the warning. I am not going to cancel anyone. If somebody asks me for information and if I can give it to them, if I have that expertise, if I have that ability to hopefully help illuminate, help that journalism, help that journalist kind of understand something better, then that's what I'm going to do. And so I appreciate the heads up and I understand the warning. And this was coming from folks that I don't think were responsible for what might be, you know, restrictions on access to me and things along those lines. It was more along the lines of, you know, somebody else here is going to not let me use you as a source. Somebody else here is going to object to seeing Hoag Law or Richard Hoag in various places. Uh, And I'm not going to reference the publications in in general, uh, but these were well-meaning people. They don't deserve to be outed. They were trying to help me. But it's worth noting that 
regardless of whether there's a cabal with secret handshakes or whatnot, there's clearly an outward pressure. There's clearly a set of Michigan fans at various places that don't necessarily like to see that Notre Dame bobblehead doll on the desk. And so you've got people that are preemptively taking actions to make sure that that doesn't happen, make sure that they don't get on the wrong side of those Michigan fans. And the result is something that looks a lot like concerted, concentrated effort, even if that isn't being held at Freemason meetings or what have you. Now, it's worth noting also that, hey, I've been quoted in a lot of stuff, right? I'm in Game Daily Biz a lot. I have a lot of people that I talk to over there. I'm also not exactly a great representative of, you know, right-wing or conservative thought. For the most part, we don't go out with much politically at all, but where we have kind of talked about things that touch on politics, you can see, you know, Washington Post, the five crimes Mueller suggests Trump could be charged with. That was them publishing a chart that I did on Twitter, having read the Mueller report and talking about the various ways he describes the elements of obstruction and putting a nexus in it and putting a chart together that the Washington Post liked that John Oliver wound up referencing, that their producers contacted me to talk about, obviously kind of characterized in the Washington Post and on John Oliver's show from a somewhat leftward leaning bent. The point is I try to get information out there. And so it's a little bit unusual. It's a little bit hard for me to look at something like this and say, yeah, there's a cabal, there's a clique, there's whatever you want to call it. I jokingly call it in this video a sect because I really like the pun, let's talk about sects. But ultimately what you've got, I think, is general conformity. You've generally got folks that want to not step outside from the protection, from the protective environment of being in a group and being protected by essentially sharing certain ideals, certain concepts, and certain ideas. As Barney Stinson, character on How I Met Your Mother, once said in a poster that he built himself for this purpose, conformity. It's the one who is different that gets left out in the cold. And I think that's what's happening here. And I think if I'm reading that article, I'm looking at it, I'm saying, oh, anonymous sources, Russia Today. Uh, it's not that specific, but it does tend to jive with what I have understood, both from my personal interactions with people, legitimate people that have warned me about things for my benefit. They did this because they liked me, they liked my sourcing, they liked what I was providing to these various outlets and said, hey, you know, can you lighten up on X? Can you not talk to people of certain persuasions? That would help us out and we could use you more. And I think primarily that's not a cabal, that's not a clique as we might think of it. It's not a secret society, it's conformity. It's you don't want to be outside the orthodoxy of your publication. And I think we see that not just in video games, I think we see that all across the industries that we know. And I know certain industries better than others. I know law firms. I know law school. I've pulled up an article now from Stanford University or from a specific scholar at Stanford University called Political Discrimination and Law Professor Hiring. It says in the abstract, there are comparatively few conservative and libertarian law professors on U.S. law school faculties. Why is this? One possible explanation is discrimination based on political orientation. This paper uses a model to test that thesis. The paper, using statistical methods, finds that upon comparing conservative libertarian law professors hired from 2001 to 2010, so about 10 years ago now, with equally credentialed liberal law professors, conservatives and libertarians end up on average at a law school ranked 12 to 13 spots lower on 
the world rankings for law schools. Said another way, they wind up in a tier that is less prestigious. And when we talk about something like the video game journalism industry, you can see how that would operate without having a next tier, right? When you talk about libertarians and conservatives getting kicked down 12 or 13 spots, try to imagine what 12 or 13 spots below, say, Polygon is, right? We start to get into maybe various YouTubers of of specific stripes, and you do see on YouTube and those kinds of indie uh, channels a persuasion of politics that you maybe don't see reflected uh, in the mainstream websites. But because those kind of mid-tier websites don't really fully exist, the effect of something like this, if it were to appear in a games journalism context, is to have those voices disappear from what is the mainstream in games journalism. Says further, thus, while there may be other mechanisms, not just kind of straight up discrimination, causing the dearth of conservative and libertarian law professors in the legal academy, those who do make it in the door that get that first job appear to experience discrimination based on political orientation. That the way to make it to a top tier law school is generally to start at a lower tier law school and work your way up. And the libertarians and conservatives are finding a ceiling of sorts uh, at the mid tier uh, of, of law firms. The paper also discusses the harms that a lack of conservative and libertarian law professors causes, namely that legal scholarship suffers from an echo chamber. Law students, particularly liberal ones, may not sufficiently learn how to make or counter conservative and libertarian arguments. And law and policy is not as strong as it could be without conservative libertarian critiques and perspectives. That's what we talked about earlier in the video, right? Iron sharpens iron, steel sharpens steel, whatever you want to call it having those fights with things that are not straw men, that understanding the other party's perspective, the other political persuasion makes your arguments better, maybe fundamentally makes your own belief system stronger. But if you're only ever arguing against shadows and demons and gremlins that you've imagined, that you've built as straw men in your mind, you aren't having that kind of experience. You aren't bettering yourself on a human level. And this is, yes, targeted at conservative and libertarians. I would tell my viewers or listeners that are conservative or libertarian in their own bent that they should also probably be engaging with the Voxes of the world. Or if you find them overly liberal, the Polygons and the Katakus of the world. That you should be having those engagements, not necessarily to have fights with people on Twitter or on social media, but to engage yourself, to better understand your own belief system. Every single day, I find my beliefs kind of moved a little bit, at least as someone brings another bright idea that I didn't have on my own. We live in an age of unparalleled information and you can get ideas from every corner and you can help solidify your own beliefs based on the actual full strength of what someone else might believe that you entirely disagree with. And I think that makes the most sense that every aspect of journalism, every aspect of law, Every aspect of the society in which we find ourselves in is helped by engaging with other people on these ideas, to have that battle of thought, to better hone what it is that you yourself believe. And at a fundamental level, at a philosophical and humanitarian level, to not treat other people just solely as their political belief system. That what's being described here, the end of bias to to try to help yourself, I think will also humanize your opponent, right? Othering is very easy. Right? To just think all those Trump supporters or all those Bernie supporters are evil incarnate. It's a lot harder to kind of dive in and decide, hey, there's something worth figuring out there. I respect this person in every other area of their life, and they have come to this conclusion, which might well be wrong. 
might have these conversations and decide, hey, I still think they're wrong. But to actually understand how they came to understand their belief system is helpful to you. And ultimately, if they're your friend, helpful to better understanding how your friend's mind operates and where they're coming from. I think that's useful. Virtual legality is for helping folks understand the world around them a little bit better. And the best way to do that is to interact with that world. Now, the last thing I want to kind of cover on this video is that we talked about this before. Now, I jokingly called this, I know this is the Gamergate motto, but I jokingly called this video that I've brought up now, it's about ethics and games journalism. This was actually in response in February of last year to Russ Pitts, who was then leading The Escapist, talking about a need to kind of separate politics, to talk about ethics and games journalism and all this kinds of stuff, similar to what we're talking about in this video, but not identical. I covered it in that video, but one of the things I really wanted to talk about there was that like Vox and Fox, like we just talked about, I think there's a space for different kinds of takes on video game journalism. I think there's a space for this article, which is what I discussed in that video that talks about Resident Evil 2 and how they have problems with it. The author does with the fact that so much of it takes place in a police station that as they describe it, that notion is wild that the police station is a fortress slash safe haven. It's laughably naive, particularly for people of color. I don't necessarily agree with that sentiment. I don't necessarily agree that this should inform your entire playthrough of something like Resident Evil 2, but I find it useful to understand how people can come to that understanding themselves, to kind of figure out, to grapple with different thoughts from my own. And I counterpoise that with Easy Allies, which does a more traditional game review that talks about how the game operates, how the plot functions, a little bit closer to uh, what we might have expected from the game pros and the EGMs of old. But I think there's a place for both. And I very much think that that's important, that we can have a place for both, that we should not just cancel folks, that we should not just get rid of the people that are bringing a liberal kind of take on what video games are that we find ourselves, we find our understanding of the world best by really taking into consideration all these various kind of philosophical positions. So the last thing I will leave you with is this little section of the video that I was just talking about in which Jason Schreier, who is the main investigative journalist of Kotaku, who's very active on Twitter, who has written a couple of books on the game process, is responding to Russ Pitts and what was happening in February of last year. And he says as follows, he says, in reality, game reporters are both publicly and privately discussing ethical issues every day, from previews to blacklists to plagiarism. So it's hard not to see the escapists, but why aren't we talking about ethics in games journalism as a dog whistle for the worst people? He's referring to gamer gators there. Same dog whistle as will leave politics at the door, says one of his followers. Yes, absolutely. That's a gross and disturbing sentiment and such a privileged thing to say. Privileged as it may be, says another one of his followers, there is an audience that they can serve who doesn't want to read about politics, no matter how important or pertinent. Their stance can serve that audience. And Jason Schreier finishes off by saying, it's impossible to detach art from politics. A video game site that actually leaves politics at the door would have to refrain from covering Call of Duty, The Division, Red Dead, and so on. No politics here is actually code for we're okay with the status quo. And I bring this Twitter thread up from Jason primarily as an example of how important this discussion actually is, even in the relatively unserious framework of video games. 
No, I tend to side with the fact that you don't necessarily need to take a political prism to every piece of media that you consume, that you can have a more easy allies approach and you can get something of value out of it. But I also think you don't necessarily need to strip it out of whatever you're saying and that there is a good place for editorial commentary on what the politics of, you know, the division represents. And so I think I'm somewhat in between these two spots. But what's important is that politics, if it's going to be discussed in video games, if it's going to be part of the conversation, is something that can't just be conformist. That if you're only ever getting one piece of the information, one spectrum of which you can enjoy your medium of choice, whether that's video games, movies, TV, books, whatever it might be, you aren't getting the full picture. You aren't kind of having that humanitarian experience that you want to have with the medium because you're only ever getting shouted at from one direction and that that conformity is a risk. And it's a risk primarily to lowering the overall quality of what it is that you produce, right? As this abstract for this analysis of law professor hiring says, the liberal ones suffer because they never get the chance to even engage with the conservative arguments. And yes, that is inarguably more important when we talk about our justice system and the lawyers that our society is producing that can actually put people in jail, that can threaten folks through law enforcement with guns and things of that nature. That's more important than the politics of Kingdom Hearts 3. But if we're going to have that political discussion at all, it is still important. And I would love to have that conversation with Jason Schreier. As a matter of fact, we've appeared on the same podcast in consecutive weeks and things along those lines. I would love to have that conversation with him. Let's see what he has to say. Oh, well, as it turns out, Hoaglaw is blocked from seeing Mr. Schreier's tweets, from engaging with him on the medium that he uses most often. Why I was blocked, you don't really get that feedback on Twitter, but it is in fact the case. And hey, if you're interested in what Jason wound up saying about Ms. Narwitz's article, he calls it conspiracy theory nonsense. As I said, if you don't have secret rings, you don't wear the robes, and you don't go to those underground cabal meetings, it's pretty easy to wipe away what is almost undoubtedly an issue of conformity rather than concerted action. This has been Virtual Legality for today. If you like this video, please like, please share, please subscribe. We are talking about these kinds of things all the time. We just yesterday talked about the legality of streaming and how essentially all streamers in some respects are operating at the largesse of the publishers. And that means that we should all probably be taking into account exactly what those streamers risk by saying anything negative about the content that they are streaming. We also talk about technology, Google, Apple. We've talked about COPPA. We've talked about privacy. We've talked about terms and conditions of the big tech giants. We love to talk about those things here. We would love more subscribers. We would love for you to share it around and tell people that we are out there and that we exist because hopefully we're illuminating. Hopefully we're educational. Hopefully we're fun. And if you caught us on YouTube, we very much appreciate you watching. Thank you so much. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.